Well, Father, we are so thankful for um, just the opportunity to study um, the book of Ruth. And as we do so, I pray that we will learn of your great love for your people. I pray that you will speak to the hearts and minds of the people here, that as they read this, that they will see this more than just a story, but an account, a retelling of how you interact with your own. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me tell you about Rick and Lois. They started attending First Baptist Church of Plainville, and it has been invigorating for them. You know, they've kind of gone to church, uh, various churches, but they got a tip from a friend. They went there, and, and they were not disappointed. There is solid biblical preaching, but what they also notice is that the people really seem to, to care about them. Uh, they got invitations to go out to lunch. They got invited into some small group. They spent time in people's homes. And after three years, uh, they're just part of the family. They really love it. But Rick and Lois have some secrets. How they act at church is betrayed by how they act at home. Uh, for one thing, Lois has a temper. I mean, an explosive temper. If Rick doesn't clean up after himself, if he doesn't clean to her standards, she will let him have it with R-rated tirades. And Rick is, is, he's resentful of this. He doesn't like coming home to a war zone. He feels like his whole life is built around Lois and his temper. And so in some acts of quiet rebellion, he'll get on his smartphone He'll look at some lusty images on the internet. And then he becomes more distant from her, not available to Lois. And, and Lois um, senses a growing tension and distance in their marriage, which makes her even angrier. And so here they are in this continual cycle that is destroying their marriage. And the church begins to pick up that, that something's not quite right here. Something's not quite right. Lois is always asking about, hey, pray for my husband. He's struggling with this. She begins to kind of you know, vent about her feelings about her husband. And the ladies are starting to, to notice and call her out on, on some of her heart issues. The men in Rick's life begin to suggest, you know, ask him about you know, some of these issues and recommends that he gets an internet filter. Why don't you subscribe to Covenant Eyes or, or Canopy? And, and he's like, well, I, I don't know about that. And then they're, they're all prompted to finally sit down with the pastor when the pastor unearths exactly what is happening and tells them that you need some long-term marriage counseling. Well, Rick and Lois begin to see some family on various weekends. No, we're just, we're just seeing family. We're just kind of traveling. And, and three months later, they send an email to the pastor telling them that they're going to another church to get a fresh start. To get a fresh start. Now you see what they're trying to do, right? They believe that a change in environment is going to change their problems. And we can all kind of relate to that, right? Sometimes the easiest thing to do is to run from your problems. 
And nothing is new, nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. In the beginning of Ruth, we see another family that's on the run from their problems. In fact, turn with me to Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. There are Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, in this passage, right off the bat, we're introduced to really the central character of the story of Ruth, and it's not Ruth. It's really a story of Naomi. And here we have Naomi brought low. And what we learn about Naomi is that her suffering is not like the suffering of Job, right? Where God was having a conversation with Satan, and Satan said, the only reason why Job is faithful is because you give him everything. See what happens when you don't. The suffering of Naomi, in many ways, is triggered by Naomi. She was a sufferer, but she was also a sinner. And as you keep on reading in the story, you find out that Naomi is not exactly a solid believer. You see, later on, she gets herself into bitterness. She also tells her, her Moabite daughters to go back to their own country and by implication, their own gods. She gives terrible advice to Ruth that puts Ruth and Boaz in a very compromising situation. Now, you can't blame her. She was at a point of desperation. This was the time during the judges where everyone does what was right in their own eyes. But what you find is someone who is, to a certain extent, spiritually compromised and suffering. But what you also see is that in this short story, which is considered a literary masterpiece, by the way, Johann Goethe, the German Shakespeare, said this about Ruth, that it is the loveliest complete work on a small scale. It is a brilliant story that is rich with all kinds of twists and turns and intrigue. You see Naomi, who is decidedly cursed at the beginning, end up decidedly blessed. You see the fall and then the rise, the redemption. You see how Israel starts out under the reign of the judges, a dark time in the nation of Israel. And in the end, they are, you see indications of David and the monarchy and the kingship and the golden age. But probably the most dominant theme that we find in Ruth is this concept of, of hesed. Have you guys ever heard that term, hesed? I've said it in some sermons. Uh, it's a Hebrew word. 
It means loyal love. There's no exact English equivalent, right? When, when I say love, you might think about erotic love or romantic love. Uh, in the New Testament, we have agape love, which is a love that you don't deserve. But hesed love has this, this idea of, uh, of loyalty, right? If you are loyal to someone, and you stand by them, and you persevere with them, you endure with them, you endure them, because there is a, a special bond between you. It's almost like a covenantal love, right? I, I can't quit this friendship. I, I can't leave. I'm bound to you, and my life must shrink. I must say no to these other commitments because of my commitment to you. It's a loyal love. Well, the book of Ruth is all about this loyal love. You see, Ruth, Ruth is the embodiment of a loyal love which is used to really redeem Naomi. You see, Boaz, a Christ figure, who in an act of loyal love marries Ruth so that he and Ruth could give their firstborn child to Naomi. I mean, what a sacrifice. And by the end, you see Naomi, a wayward Israelite, is restored. And what's interesting is you see that the Moabites, who in the book of Judges afflicted the Israelites, a Moabitess is the means of restoring an Israelite. God's hesed love, his providential oversight of all these circumstances, is designed to bring Naomi back. And in the opening, we see uh, kind of a different take of his hesed love. His hesed love comes in the form of discipline. And, and I'm going to just read it again. And, and as I do, think to yourself, what will stop all this suffering? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They're Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Both Malon and Kilion died, so the woman was left with her two sons and her husband. It almost has a Jonah feel to it, right? They're on the run. They're on the run, but the Lord brings them back. And this captures the central theme of the book of Ruth, which, incidentally, um, was probably written in the reign, during the reign of Solomon. That it was a time when the arts flourished, where they'd have time to make this kind of book. And it answered an important question. It promoted the reign of David. Remember, during that time, everyone was obsessed with genealogies. Who you were related to said a lot about you. And when they looked at David's family line, they noticed that he had a Moabitess in the bloodstream. But what this does, as it shows, is not a Moabitess. It is a woman who 
embodies Hesed love. And a father who embodies Hesed love. They were faithful men and women. They were a man and woman of extreme integrity. And this shows that David is really a chip off the old block. It was, he was begotten of, of Hesed love. And Hesed love is not something that takes just one form. For instance, when you think about what is the opposite of love, what's the opposite? Don't say it out loud. You can say it to yourself. What's the opposite of love? Now, some of you might think, well, hate, as expressed through anger. But that's not really the opposite of Hesed love. The opposite of Hesed love is apathy. It's just not caring. It's just letting them go. I'm done with you, right? I feel no obligation to pursue you, to stick with you. But in these first five verses, we see God's Hesed love where he is not content to just allow Naomi to go. You leave me, you leave Israel, you leave Judah, you leave the land of the tabernacle, I'm done with you. No, there is a holy pursuit that takes place in a very painful way, but there's a design to it. And what we learn is if you belong to God, you can run, right? You can run, but you can't hide. So let's walk through this passage. We're going to see the reason to run, the rationale to run, and the results of running. So let's look at the first point, the reason to run. Verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, okay? The judges are ruling. This is before the monarchy. There was a famine in the land. Now, this frames the entire story. It's the days of the judges. This is the wild west of Israel. Every man was doing what was right in their own eyes. And to properly understand this time, uh, it's important to understand, you know, originally, God gave Israel the promised land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, right? It was a place that was prosperous. It was to be uh, abundant. Yeah, they had fresh water in the ancient Near East, right? The Sea of Galilee was a marvel. You had the Jordan River. There was abundant resources for them. That's why it's always been so desirable. And God has a stipulation. He says, I'm going to give you this land. It's going to flow with milk and honey, but I've got some stipulations here. He explains in Leviticus 26, 14 through 20. But if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that will consume the eyes and make the heart ache. Man, that sounds painful. And you shall sow your seed in vain, and your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and, those, and you shall flee when none pursue you. And if despite this you will not listen to me, I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, 
and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Did you catch that last part? God's not being apathetic here, is he? If you disobey me, don't think that you're going to have abundant harvest. And so were they obeying? Well, if you do a read-through of the Bible and you read through the book of Judges, Ruth is just a breath of fresh air, isn't it? Because in Judges, the people of God did all kinds of bad things. Now, just so you know, I'm just telling you a Bible story here, okay? But you look at the, the final chapters of Judges, and there's a, a story of a priest and a concubine who stayed at a home in the territory of Benjamin. And at night, some Benjamites come out and they demand that the priest show himself so that they can have relations with him. And so what does the priest do? He takes his concubine, the slave that he took out of his wife, he does not have full privileges of a wife, and he says, satisfy your lust with her. And they abuse her all night. And the priest opens the door, he finds her dead, says, get up. I mean, that's a priest? And when he finds out that she's dead, he cuts her into 12 pieces and sends her to the 12 tribes of Israel to say, look at what has been done. And so the rest of the tribes all gather together and they nearly annihilate Benjamin. Thousands, tens of thousands of them die. Tens of thousands of the Israelites die. And so... You have a small group of Benjamites. They have all made vows not to give their daughters in marriage to them. And so, do you know what they come up with? They, they arrange for a mass kidnapping. A mass kidnapping, an abduction of women. Right, this is a very low time in Israel. This was the people of God who are supposed to represent God to the world. They were doing this. And so when there's a famine in the land during the time of the judges, you know that there is a good reason for it. That whole country is under the discipline of the Lord. Yeah, and discipline is a good thing. I mean, have you guys ever been around undisciplined kids? Maybe during Thanksgiving, you had some family come over and they brought those nieces and nephews and you want to just like give them a book on spanking, you know? might want to read this, could help. <laughs> Please discipline your kids, otherwise I will. <laughs> right, when you're around undisciplined kids, they do what's right in their own eyes, and you're raising little tyrants, right? No, God is the, the father in some respect of Israel, and he's not going to just let them do whatever they want. There is going to be discipline, and that's what you see in Judges over and over again. He disciplines them in some way, they cry out to the Lord, and then he restores them. Okay, that is the cycle. And you would think that they would learn their lesson, but they don't. You would think that Elimelech would know better. But instead of dealing with this discipline as the Lord prescribes, he runs. But there's a rationale behind it. We see the rationale of running. Look at the rest of verse 1. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. 
The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, he is a man from Bethlehem. Now, we think about Bethlehem, we think of Christmas. But when the original audience read, read this, they read Bethlehem, house of bread. This was the breadbasket of Israel. It, it, they, had, they had olive trees and fig trees and grapes and barley and wheat. It was all plentiful in that area. But now the famine is so bad that the house of bread can't support a family, or so he thinks. We're also introduced to this man named Elimelech, which means God is my king. Now, one thing with names is you don't name yourself, right? Somebody else gives you that name. In this case, the parents gave him the name, God is my king. This is during the time of the judges where local warlords were the ones who reigned. But his parents had enough sense to know that God is my king. That was the name they gave to their son. He was likely raised by God-fearing parents to a certain extent. We also learned that he was an Ephrathite from the clan of Ephrathah. Scholars believe that this is the, the lineage of Caleb. Do you guys remember Caleb? Remember when the Israelites were in the desert? They sent 12 spies into the promised land. Ten of them came back and said, we are grasshoppers in their sight. They're going to lick us. We have no chance. We're going to die. God sent us out here to, to kill us. But Joshua and Caleb, remember, they said, no, no, trust the Lord. We're going to be okay. With God, we're more powerful than them. And so Israel was disciplined for 40 years, and only two of, the, of that generation, of that older generation that saw the Passover as adults, made it into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. He was a man of faith. He was respected. This would be the equivalent of Churchill in England. To be from Ephrathah was to have almost an aristocratic name. And so what we find is that this man who was raised by the Lord decides to leave. He decides to run from his problem. Where there's another solution to this famine. There's another solution to this famine. It's found in Deuteronomy 30, verses 8 through 10. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of the womb and in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord again will take delight in prospering you as you took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, mind you, this is not name it, claim it theology. Don't take this farmers and say, if we turn to the Lord, we'll have a guaranteed harvest. This was a specific promise to Israel at the time. But these were Israelites, and there is a promise that if you have a famine, the reason why you have a famine is because of your disobedience. And if you turn away from your disobedience and repent, famine will be over, right? That's the solution. But what does he do? He doesn't stay and use his 
local influence to try to influence others to repent, he just leaves. He leaves his heritage in the promised land. He leaves an inheritance. He leaves his family, extended family. He leaves his clan. He leaves the tabernacle of the Lord. He leaves the priesthood, the presence of God, to go to Moab. Now, the original audience, when they heard Moab, they said, Moab? you got to be kidding me. And you're thinking, well, what's wrong with Moab? Well, it did not have a good reputation. It was a cousin of Israel. It was sired by Lot. Remember Lot, Abraham's nephew? He was in Sodom and Gomorrah. God sent an angel and said, get out of here because I'm going to nuke this place. And so he left with his wife. His wife turned back, turned into a pillar of salt, but he took his two daughters. And after the whole episode, his two daughters were convinced that Lot was the last man on earth. And so the daughters got him good and drunk, had relations with him. Again, this is in the Bible. Had relations with him. And when they conceived, that was the beginning of Moab. They were sired by an incestuous union. And so Israel would look at them as inbred. They're inbred. Jeff Foxworthy had a saying. You guys know Jeff Foxworthy? He said, if you go to a family reunion to pick up women, you might be a redneck, right? So the Jews looked at these Moabs as backwoods, inbred hillbillies. You're going to go there? Further, when they journeyed to the promised land from Egypt, they tried to get passage through Moab, and Moab did not want that. In fact, they hired Balaam to curse them. And when that didn't work, they came up with the idea of, well, let's send some of our most attractive women to try to seduce these men. On top of that, during the judges, their king, Eglon, assaulted Israel. I mean, these were the enemies of the Jews. In fact, God made it very clear to them that no Moabite is to enter his presence for 10 generations. If you want to do the map, Ruth, there's more than 10 generations after this, but Moab was no friend to Israel. And so for Elimelech to go to Moab would be like a U.S. senator emigrating to the Soviet Union. It's like, what are you thinking? So what was he thinking? Why was he going to Moab? Why does he seem to be the only person who's doing it? Well, the name of his sons offer somewhat of a clue. These are sons that they named Malon, which means to be sick. Any clue about why they named him Malon? And then you have Kilion, which means frailty. So this is my son, sickness, and this is frailty. I wouldn't have chose those names, but, you know. But, but you could see, and the fact that they died 10 years, they died young, they were probably sick and frail sons. They were sick and frail humans. 
And so to a certain extent, there would have been a sense of alarm that if they're not well fed, what's going to happen to my sons? They, they won't live here. They're in unique danger. And so he sets out, and originally it's just to sojourn. We're just going to live there for a little while. Hey, guys, watch the house a little bit. Make sure the cattle are fed. We're going to be in Moab, but just for a little while, just kind of looking after my sons. But then in the rest of verse 2, then they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Unpack the bags, kids. We're going to be here for a long time. Right? It wasn't just a little while. He made a choice to intentionally leave the promised land. And why did he do it? It's for the children. It's for the children, right? You can't argue with that. It's for the children. It's for the children. You know, often you see people use children as a trump card to excuse their behavior. Now, I love children, just so you know, especially mine. I understand the need to keep your children safe and to protect them, but let's just be honest here. Often, when people want to do something, like when Rick and Lois want to move to another church, they're not going to tell people, you know what, we really don't want to deal with our sin, and we want to keep on living in rebellion against God and do what's right in our own eyes, and thankfully the church is used of the Lord to convict us, so we want to escape. Right? No, no one ever says that. There's always some righteous reason that they give for why they need to leave. It's the children. That's one of them. You know, I can't take up this ministry responsibility because it'll take me away from my children. We can't go to Bible study because I don't want my kids exposed to all those germs. You know what? I can't quit my job that forces me to miss Sundays because I need to provide for my children. I can't be a missionary because if I go overseas with my children, they'll come back weird. It's about the children. It's about the children. I was just kidding, missionary kids, by the way. <laughs> I think you're very normal. But it does kind of capture the fears, right? People are afraid because it's all about the children. And it may not be, be the children. It, it might be, Rick, why don't you put a filter on your phone? Well, I need it for work. I mean, if I can't work, I can't provide for my children. Lois, why don't you come in for counseling? Well, I can't get away. I need to be used every night to help my children with homework. But you know what your children need more than anything? They need parents who love the Lord that don't excuse disobedience. You know, and the thing is, you can make all those excuses and some of them work. You can successfully persuade others that this is a necessary step and you really do need to leave. Uh, perhaps Elimelech did that. Okay, well, yeah, he does have real children. I can see why he had to leave. But you will never pull the wool over the Lord's eyes. Ultimately, he knows. He knows. And what we see is they move to a different location, but they do not move from the oversight of the Lord. You see the results of running in verse 3. So keep in mind, why did Elimelech leave? To presumably protect his family. To protect his family. And did it work? But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, 
died. Very difficult to protect your family when you're dead. To state the obvious. And here is a man whose name is God is my king, buried in Moab, a pagan land, which would have been honestly a desecration and a disgrace. And so he moved there to protect his two sons. But notice the transfer. He died and she was left with her two sons. She became the head of the household. And what's interesting is she did not turn around, even though her family is from Bethlehem, she did not turn around at this point and go to Bethlehem, right? The, I mean, the audience is just screaming, right? Get back to Bethlehem, come on. Nope, she is going to stay, which is an indication that Naomi wasn't just taken along. She wasn't just taken along. She decides to stay, and then she decides to do something else. These, her two sons, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other, Ruth. She did not want her family line to go out. She might have felt uniquely vulnerable in a foreign land, and so perhaps intermarrying with the local population will establish some, some, some ties, ingratiate them in the community. You know, this is necessary for survival. We can't go back to Israel. But you know what? This was an absolute no-no in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 30, 28, 32, God tells the people of Israel, your sons and daughters... Your sons and daughters shall be given to another people, and that is a punishment. They are commanded in the law that they are not to marry outside the faith. King Solomon is a testimony to this, right? He married foreign wives, and what happened? They pulled his heart away. When they entered the promised land, they are told, You're not, you are not to intermarry. And you can understand why, because marriage is the closest human relationship. When you marry someone, as one husband, one wife, one flesh for life. I mean, think with me if you were to make the mistake of marrying a vegan. I just offended all vegans. But if you marry a vegan, there's going to be dinnertime tension, especially on Thanksgiving. Where's the turkey? Just stuffing green beans, potatoes? What's this? You would have to adjust your diet to a vegan diet. Otherwise, she's going to make her food, you're going to make your food. There'll be tension because you can't necessarily sit around the table because you're always adjusting to each other's needs. And that's good in a lot of ways, but when it comes to the faith, it's very difficult. If you marry an unbeliever, three things will happen. Number one, to be in sync with your spouse, you would be tempted to push Christ to the margins of your life. You're going to be tempted to push Christ to the margins of your life. You're going to avoid certain topics. You're not going to talk about the need for the gospel. You're not going to talk about the reality of judgment and end times. You're not going to talk about the authority of God's word. They don't understand it. They don't want to hear about it. And that part of your life that's so important to you will be pushed to the margin and there'll be some tension there 
And, and some decide, you know what? It's more important to be close to my spouse. I'm going to push it to the margin so we can be close. Another option is you might manage to hold on to a robust faith. You go to church, read the Bible, you're involved in all the Bible studies, and you find fellowship in the body of Christ, but it's not found at home. And so you become more deeply committed to the church, and your spouse feels like they've been pushed to the margins, like they don't matter. You push your spouse aside. And when that happens, usually the marriage breaks up or the spouses develop a truce where they just have their own separate worlds, right? This is the wisdom of God. You don't intermarry with unbelievers. You don't marry an unbeliever because when you do, you are basically anchoring yourself to someone who's always going to try to drag you away from the faith. And yet Naomi did it. Not Naomi per se, but she had her sons do it. There is that sense of, uh, of desperation. This is going to solve our problems. This is going to allow the family line to, to continue. My sons will get married. They will have sons. And the family name of Elimelech will live on. But did it work? Did it work? Verse 4, they lived there about 10 years. So they were married, and after 10 years of trying, Malon and Kilion were unable to produce an heir. And then, verse 5, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now this is every mother's nightmare. Now in a highly patriarchal culture, think the Muslim world, okay? Think about the Muslim world. In the Muslim world, the marriage was to produce children. It wasn't necessarily all about companionship. Men would have their friends, women would have their friends. And the closest relationship, the most significant relationship that a mother could hope for is a relationship with her son. That was the closest relationship. The son was a pride and joy. The son was the man who really loved her and wanted to be with her. And so when Naomi loses her sons, she basically lost her whole world. This is devastating. This is why she says in 121, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, which means pleasant, when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She lost everything. And what's interesting is the response. At last, verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. At last, repentance happened in Israel. Once again, people were restored to the Lord. And that extremely local famine, which is interesting, Moab didn't get it, but Judah did, is over. And so she goes back. And, and that's what you find. This, 
This is all about Naomi being restored. And for Naomi to be restored, she had to return to the promised land. She had to return to the people of God and the presence of God. Now, if you were to just stop there, it's just a very harsh discipline, right? It's disciplining with pain and suffering with nothing else. But the Lord's Hesed love doesn't just break people, it rebuilds people. You break them down, you build them up. And the means by which the Lord will build her up is through the faithful love of Ruth and eventually Boaz. That is what he wants for her. They will restore her, rebuild her, and give her a glorious future. This is Hesed love in action. Yes, there's the beautiful reality of Ruth, but there's also a Lord who will not give up on you and do whatever it takes to finally bring you back. Now, the Lord doesn't curse us or bless us based off our uh, obedience like they did with Israel. But we do find that the Lord does have a faithful love for his people, that he will not allow his true children to go their own way completely. Hebrews 12, 6 through 11, the author says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, if you go wayward, you might be able to run from your problem, you might change your environment, you might keep it under wraps. You can run, but you can't hide from the Lord. At some point in time, if you truly belong to Him, He is going to do something in your life. He will take something away. And granted, I want to be clear here that not all suffering is a result of discipline. Sometimes the righteous do suffer as a pruning thing. But it is true that when God's children are being intentionally disobedient and they are running from the Lord, they can expect a pursuit where God's hesed love will bring it, to your bring it to your attention. He will break you. So like Naomi, you return to him. Now with Rick and Lois, how will the Lord break them? Assuming that they're his children? I don't know. And if I were Rick and Lois, I would not want to find out. Would you? Right? There's always two ways to do something. Right? God could say there's the easy way, which is I'm going to deal with this right now and repent. 
Or there's a hard way. I'm going to ignore this, not repent, and just allow God to work me over. But either way, the Lord is going to get his people back. And that's really the story of Ruth. How he brings a wayward sheep back into the fold. And the answer is Hesed love. God is not apathetic to his children. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes there's pain. Sometimes there's suffering. And you know what? Just like parents don't enjoy punishing their kids, the Lord does not have joy in this. But he has joy in the final restoration. And he can't wait for you to turn, to break, to turn, so that he can send some carrier of Hesed love into your life, like Ruth or Boaz, or you name it, to bring you back into the fold to help you experience the enjoyable reality of his Hesed love. And so as we read about this journey, as we see the life of Naomi, we're really seeing a, a love story, right? And it's not Boaz's love for Ruth. It's not necessarily Ruth's love for Naomi. It's really a love story about God's Hesed love for his people. And all of us who are his people can experience it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I, I thank you for your faithful Hesed love for us. And I pray for anyone here who might have been cut a little bit. They know that there's something going on in their life that they want to run from. They want to push away. They don't want to deal with. And I pray that you'll give them the courage and the trust to come forward, to seek help, to confess and experience the, the fullness of the rebuilding Hesed love. And I pray that as a church, that we will be captivated by this concept, that we'll live in the reality that we can never run from you. And I pray that you'll help us to never want to. In Jesus' name, amen.